Being a geek is all about being honest about what you enjoy and not being afraid to demonstrate that affection. It means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. It's basically a license to proudly emote on a somewhat childish level rather than behave like a supposed adult. Being a geek is extremely liberating. Those were the words of Simon Pegg, I'm Luke Hector, and you're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast. On today's episode, Betrayal on House on the Hill and Mighty Koro make a less than welcome addition to my first impressions list. The discussion topic for today is Gaming with Your Spouse, How to Bring Your Non-Gaming Spouse into Gaming. And then we finish with the big one, it's my top 10 of 2014 as promised. Hello and welcome today on 22nd of February 2015. Late I know, sorry about that. It's been a very busy February for me, mostly outside of board gaming. I've had to get a boiler and flue pipe repaired. My job has required quite a lot of my attention lately. I'm currently sorting out a remortgage on my flat in order to get a better deal. You name it, I'm pretty much sorting it out this month. But at least I'm back now, and of course, this podcast is still continuing. Now, in terms of everything else I'm doing related to gaming, the art, sorry, not the art, the Order of the Dan podcast that I mentioned before is hopefully going to still continue. It seems to be on a bit of a hold-up at the moment, mainly due to some, uh, let's say, some deliberations over what constitutes family-friendly, etc. But hopefully that's going to start kick-starting eventually, and we'll be able to start bringing that podcast to the global domain. Other than that, my reviews are still going on. I'm considering getting back into the video side of things, maybe in conjunction with Board Game Breakfast done by the Dice Tower, or Z's new variety show, Z Garcia. Now, I haven't discussed this with them, this is just ideas forming in my head, but obviously I can't do a massive review on YouTube anymore because I don't have the camera set up to do it. However, I was thinking of a kind of picture montage effect, you know, where I've got the pictures and various, like, arrows and effects and stuff like that going all over the place just to make it a bit like visually entertaining but then my voice comes over just like I'm doing now with my headset and it means I don't actually have to video part of the game or video myself I mean who wants to see my ugly face these days but it means that I can still do a video and I would be keeping these short we're probably talking like three to four minutes max per video I've seen YouTube videos go on for ages and that's okay when you've got people to talk with but on yourself I think it's better when you've got less time and the consensus does tend to be that less than five minutes is a pretty good length for a YouTube video. So who knows, maybe I'll start getting back into that. It would be nice to get the channel back up and running. Obviously I am doing this solo, I do have a life, I do have a girlfriend. So it is not easy to do this stuff. But hopefully I'll be able to find some way into that domain later. Other than that, my association with GamesQuest is still going strong, and on that note, I just want to mention something about some of the reviews I do. People will notice that some reviews I will do on my own site, and some I will do via GamesQuest. You will notice that the format of these reviews is slightly different between the two, particularly in realms to the titles and the use of SEO language. Now, for GamesQuest, I have to abide by their formats and what their SEO marketing team says I should put in the reviews. That includes titles with lots of exclamation marks and question marks. I don't particularly see the point of this, but, oh well, that's what they want us to do, so I'm having to adhere by it. 
But if you look at my reviews compared to the ones that I put on Games Quest, you will notice subtle differences. So it is still my opinion and it is still my review, but the language in which I portray it, you are going to notice differences. The other thing on that is timing. Now, when I want to put something on my blog, I can do it whenever I want. So I try to get it on the blog when I want it to be published. Now, obviously, I'm not the only one posting on the Games Quest blog. There are other contributors as well. There's video and there's written content, and there's a lot of games and a lot of events that need to be covered. So even though I have a finished review of Pandemic the Cure and XCOM in circulation, it's up to them when it gets published on the site, so I cannot control that. So rest assured, those two reviews are coming very soon, but you're just going to have to be patient for when Games Quest gets around to doing it. That's as simple as that. Although I will be doing my own review of One Night Ultimate Werewolf soon, and that's going to be coming on my site, so you can look forward to that when that happens. But that's enough for me, let's get on with the news. Talking briefly on some upcoming releases, let's begin with Kickstarter. Now, Kickstarter's got two games that have hit my radar for interest and potential backing, but we'll have to see. First up, Cryptozoic is now going to publish a co-op game based on the Ghostbusters license. One to four players, this will allow people to level up Ghostbusters from the movies and fight the, let's say, the iconic enemies like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man, Slimer, etc. Now, whether this is going to be a good game or not, I don't know. Cryptozoic hasn't yet impressed me with a lot of their games, so I'm hoping that they'll hit it out of the bag with this one. I'm probably not going to be backing this, but I'll be very interested when it comes out to see how it goes. Hopefully they'll do a better job with this than they did with the DC Deck Builder, so fingers crossed. But I'm going to look at this with, you know, two sides of the coin here. Next up on Kickstarter, there is also the reprint of Empire's Age of Discovery. Now, this used to be called Age of Empires 3, but they couldn't use the computer game license for various legal reasons. Now, it's called Empire's Age of Discovery, and this was one of the first worker placement games that really kicked off in that genre, really, in the old days. This is coming out with a lot of plastic miniatures, a lot of tiles, and a, well, just a lot of components in general, a whole revised concept based on viewpoints from people who played the original game. I'm very tempted to back this one, though, because it's a genre I really like. It's civilization-based, which is a genre, again, I really like. So this could be a winner for me. But I'm just hesitant because I, I never played the original, so I have no idea what this game is like. All I can do is go by viewpoints from the Dice Tower and various other people, and it seems to be a mixed bag. I'm probably going to back it, but... I don't know. I've got plenty of time. I think the Kickstarter's still got at least another 15 days left, so I'm going to wait and see and make up my mind more than likely on the very last day, like I normally do with these Kickstarters, when I get desperate to decide, oh, do I want to back it or not? In terms of new games coming out this year, we have some pretty interesting ideas from Seven Wonders. Seven Wonders is going to bring out a two-player only version of their 
iconic game that I really like called Seven Wonders Duel. Seven Wonders Duel is basically, like I said, Seven Wonders with two players. Except some of the rules have been tweaked, so there's a couple of extra victory conditions, like if you overpower the enemy in military, you will automatically win, and vice versa for science. So there's a few tweaks, but the general system of drafting cards and playing them in your pad below remains the same. This should be an interesting concept, although Seven Wonders is not really a game that I play for as a two-player. When I play Seven Wonders, I'm playing it with a minimum of four players. And, you know, it can go up to seven with relative ease. I'm not sure there's a desperate market for two-player seven wonders, but who knows? Might still be a cool game, and chances are I might get a chance to review it when it comes out. So we'll have to wait and see on that. And finally, a light rumour has been announced from Upper Deck that the next game in the Legendary Encounter series is in fact going to be Predator. Likely to be based on the first two movies. I hope they concentrate more on the first movie, to be honest, but the second one wasn't too bad. But let's face it, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Danny Glover. Which one are you going to go for? But this will basically have, I would expect, a similar system, maybe some tweaks here and there to the Alien one that came out in 2014, which incidentally was an excellent game and really captured the Alien license quite well. So hopefully they'll be able to do the same to the Predator, and of course you'll probably be able to mix and match these to your heart's content. Now, unlike their previous claim that you could mix and match the Marvel superhero version with Alien, Alien mixing with Predator makes a lot more sense. So hopefully this will allow for some really interesting games to come out. But we're expected to hear more on that soon, and they claim that it's going to be a mid-2015 release. First of my impressions list for today is Betrayal on House on the Hill. This was a game that I finally got to play at OxCon back in late January. And this got hyped by a lot of my Southampton on board friends when they were playing it as a really cool, you know, theme-filled horror game that, even though the game has its broken sides, is still good fun to play if you get into it. I was a little sceptical on this considering I much prefer to play Arkham Horror and Eldritch Horror when I want a horror game, but I was willing to give it a look-see because the idea of a traitor mechanic sounded quite cool and it just seemed like a simple game to play, so why not? I'd give it a shot. I want those that 90 minutes plus of my life back. I really do. What is up with this game? Broken is an understatement. The game is just literally not just broken, it is split in half. The game starts with you just flipping over room tiles that pretty much look identical to each other because they are all basically just different shades of brown all over the place. Okay, you're meant to be in a haunted house that's essentially made of wood, but come on, a little bit of colour would go some distance. But most of them look exactly the same, bar some little details like some tables with bits on them, or like an outside scene or something, and maybe a kitchen cabinet here and there, I don't know. But really, it's just, it looks really bland. And all you do for the first half of the game is just run around randomly in different rooms trying to find items that beef up your character or to basically advance the game with these events and omens that come out during. Except the fact that these events are entirely random and they can really swing things in the game. I mean, you can pick up an event that boosts your stats significantly and makes you a powerhouse in that category. Or, in my case, you can pick up a card that just instantly wounds you for several damage with a bad roll, and suddenly you are crippled for the rest of the game and you can't possibly get the stat back up. 
And in a game where most of the fighting tends to rely on your physical stats, to take a crippling blow to your physical stats when you already aren't very good in the physical sense anyway, I was playing this uh, old geezer who I thought intelligence would be a decent factor in a horror game, but apparently no, it's mostly physical stats, it just basically screwed him up for the whole game. And then when the omens reach a certain halfway point, the basically the, ho- the house goes all wibbly, 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 and one of you gets revealed as a traitor, and in this case it was me. So I thought, okay, this will be a you know a nice a boost to this game. You know, I'm not enjoying it so far, but now I'm the traitor, so now I can do some cool stuff. Wrong. Basically, there are two sets to, steps to this. The players will discuss the scenario that's going on amongst themselves, like a plan of what to do. I then go away and read my bit of the scenario that tells me what I'm supposed to do on my turn. And I ha- ended up with some like voodoo priests. So each of the players had this doll that they had to find amongst the building. And each doll has a specific negative effect that it did on in the end of each of my turn. So the longer it took them to find them, the worse it got. Now, these were very basic. It was literally just, at the end of my turn, this does one point of damage. This makes him roll to test if he succeeds. If not, point of damage. And this one slows him down. Point of damage. You know, whoopee-doo. Problem is, most of them were based on physical stats. And even then, the one that I picked that was a mental stat was unfortunately taken by the girl who happened to have a character that picked up event cards that boosted her intelligence to such sick levels it was nigh on impossible for her to fail the roll. The physical ones barely did any damage either, but especially when somebody managed to pick up an item that allowed them to heal pretty easily. So basically my voodoo priest was nerfed to high heaven, and because I had the crippling blow from earlier, I couldn't even do anything like just punch them out, you know, as a typical brawler, because I had no physical stats to do it with. Any fight I got into just resulted in me dying. What was the point? So essentially, all I did was wander around doing nothing, and wait for these dolls to ping off and just see how they go finding them around the house. That was it. Woo, scary horror theme there. What? Ugh. The game is just incredibly random. The cards are completely unbalanced. The characters are completely unbalanced. There is a massive strong emphasis towards physical stats, and it just looks horrible. It's so bland. Where is the theme in this? There's little theme in here. You want a horror game that's good with lots of theme, you go play Arkham Horror and Eldritch Horror right now. Maybe Elder Sign, but to be honest, Elder Sign is mostly chucking dice and that doesn't really have the same kind of feel. You know, go take Arkham and Eldritch Horror and play them immediately. Don't play this. This is frankly trash. The only thing that kept me going through this game was me mocking the game at various intervals and just generally hamming it up with essentially sarcastic comments about what the players are doing and the game itself. But it wasn't enough. Betrayal on House on the Hill is broken, it's random, and it's bad. Just frankly, bad. And now we get on to a more recent game that has attracted a lot of hype. Now, I'm always sceptical about games that get a lot of hype because a lot of the times it doesn't live up to them. See, Dead of Winter. But with this one, I thought, well, it's a simple enough game, it's good for families, and it seems to be getting, you know, not like Spiel de Yaris type claims, but certainly one of these nice little family games that everyone can play and is really good fun. 
So Mighty Coral was a game that a friend of mine picked up and I thought, yeah, this should be interesting. You roll dice to get money and essentially you're just buying cards that will build up a little engine and you'll just get more resources and eventually win the game. So I was thinking kind of like Settlers of Catan in that sense, but just without the trading aspect. But, oh well, let's give it a try and see what happens. Now, people who rag on Catan for being random, in the sense that you roll the die and that's pretty much what dictates your ability to win the game, getting the resources you like. Now, that can be mitigated to an extent, and you have the trading aspect, which makes the Catan series so much fun. Mighty Coral doesn't have that. It doesn't have mitigation. It doesn't have trading. Mighty Coral just has a bunch of cards attributable to each number on the die, and they perform a special ability like gaining money or nicking money or stealing other cards or exchanging cards, etc., depending on what it was that the die came up with. That's it. And that's pretty much the game. You just have to, you have to buy these, sorry, you have to build these four specific locations, and the first one to do that wins the game. To do this, you are basically just buying different buildings that have different effects, constantly rolling the die and hoping that your number comes up. And the entire game is based on exactly that. Your number has to come up. Whether it's on your turn or other players' turns, the dice still has to favour you, otherwise you are going to lose this. The game seems to drag on for quite a while as well. I've heard people say they play this in next to no time at all. Ours took a while. And okay, we have a couple of players that are a bit slow, but... Even so, it was not as quick as I thought it would be. Especially for a game that is essentially just roll the die and see who wins. There's no strategy to this at all. You can argue that, oh, well, I went for these specific buildings and my strategy was to go for that. That's not a strategy. Whether you want to go for all the fruit markets or whether you want to go for all the ones that nick off other players, it's still down to the dice. The dice will dictate what you can do and that's an end of it. There's very little in the way of meaningful decisions either. It's a case of which one do you want to buy? Choose. That's pretty much it. And hanging on to money in this game is risky at best because most of the time it just gets nicked from you anyway. And even then, that kind of depends on getting the number on the dice. So really, Mighty Goro is just basically random the board game. There's not a lot of strategy in this at all, and okay, fair enough, I can see a market for this. It's essentially, I would say, families with young kids, because young kids could easily get this game, and say mums and dads who aren't massive gamers would be happy with the random effect in here. But this is not a game for diehard gamers, it really isn't. It's just basically roll the die and see who wins without any of the cool stuff that Catan has, so I don't see why people would prefer this to Catan. Catan has more in it. The trading aspect alone is enough to make Catan much better than this. This one is just literally buy the cards and hope your number comes up. Yes, you might, you know, build all your cards to suit one number, but then it may never come up. You might spread your load around, but then you might still not earn enough money. And it seems that the best strategy in this game is literally just to specialise in one number, because eventually it's going to get rolled, especially if it's one of the numbers that Um, can be rolled on everybody's turn. Like the mines, for example. The mines get you five gold every time the nine is rolled. In that case, just buy a ton of mines. Let's say you've got three mines. Fifteen gold any time somebody rolls a nine. That's going to be, even if it doesn't roll that often, it's going to be enough to get you those buildings when you need them. All you've got to do is just sit back and wait. So, 
I don't get the hype with this. It's okay. It's a little luckfest random game, and people will know me that I'm not a big lover of games that are purely random. I don't mind random effects, random events, random dice. I like a few dice games, but I just don't like it when the game is nothing but random. And there are just too many games like that these days. I mean, what's another example I can think of? Uh, ah, yes, Luchador Mexican Wrestling Dice. That's purely a luck fest as well. And I just don't go with that. So Mighty Coral is meh. It's okay. I don't think it's a bad game. It's just not for me. And really, I think this is only going to appeal to families with young kids because I can't see why gamers would love it when there's so much better out there with dice or with engine building or resource trading. I mean, if you if you want to play something like Mighty Coro, then get the Settlers of Catan. It's far better. My discussion topic for today is gaming with your non-gamer spouse. Now, I've had a girlfriend who I've been teaching my hobby to. Slowly but surely, that is. Now, she enjoys the fact that I'm teaching these games, and some of these games she has liked. However, it's been really interesting to see what kind of game she likes, what theme she likes, how she learns a game, how you know what kind of games would overwhelm her, and just generally trying to figure it out, almost like a puzzle. And I thought I'd come up with a few tips just to say to others who are in a similar deal. Now, this doesn't have to be just your girlfriend's spouse. It can be your boyfriend's spouse if it's the other way around. Basically, it's your spouse who's predominantly a non-gamer and you're just introducing to the hobby. That's the sort of key I'm going with here. Now, firstly, this is probably the most simple tip that everybody should know. Start, funny enough, simple. Start simple. because. If your spouse is a non-gamer, they're not going to suddenly be drawn into something like Terror Mystica or Kanban Automotive Revolution straight off the bat. You need to start simple. Get a game that is probably 10 times more simple than anything you class as simple as your starting game. Now, I consider The Settlers of Catan to be a phenomenally simple game. But I've had some non-gamers who even find that a bit much as their first game. I'm talking get the fillers out, get the micro games that are really simple and start off with them. Love Letter is a great example of a game that fits this bag. No Thanks is another example. You want games that are so frightfully simple that a monkey could understand them. Use them as the first introduction. Take baby steps with them. So... Like I said, No Thanks and Love Letter are good examples. I would also like to suggest maybe Hanabi as another example. That's a very simple game, but one that a lot of non-gamers get into. And on the subject of Hanabi, my second tip is ideally start with co-ops. Now, there's no guarantee that your spouse is going to like co-op games. And if that is the case, then just move on to a different genre. However, one thing that puts off people that aren't gamers is the conflict because a non-gamer is going to get brought into this hobby which they already know they're very inexperienced and they're going up against people with vast amounts of experience compared to them and they feel they're just going to get screwed over on a regular basis. So certainly you don't want to go playing a game like Babel with them. <laughs> you know, playing a two-player Babel game with your non-gamer spouse is not a good idea to kick the bat off with, especially if you want them to feel like they stand a chance against you. 
Certainly games like Race for the Galaxy is not a good idea either because that has a steep enough learning curve for gamers, let alone non-gamers. So co-ops are one that I would suggest. Again, keep it simple, but co-ops are great because a co-op has both of you trying to beat the game. And as a result, they don't have to feel like they're inexperienced or that they're going to lose and it's all their fault in that. Or certainly that they're not going to lose to the person teaching the game. Because what you do is that you sit them down, put the game out, and say, this is how the turn works, and I'm going to help you with it. Because in the end, your incentive is to beat the game. So you want to help your partner do it. If you're against them, and say, you know, you're trying to teach them Netrunner, for some example, then how can you teach someone Netrunner? You know, you're supposed to keep half the information hidden, and in the end, you want to beat them. So it doesn't work as well. Co-ops are great. In my girlfriend's case, for example, Forbidden Desert and Hanabi were two of the first co-op games that I introduced her to, and she loves both of them. And they're very simple. You know, Forbidden... You could have used Forbidden Island if necessary, but I think Forbidden Desert's pretty simple anyway, and I prefer that to Island. It's a simple co-op, easy to play, easy rules, you help them with their turn, and they get into it. Hanabi was another great example. You're both working together towards a common goal. And as such, her favourite games that I've taught her so far have been my co-ops. So I think a favourite at the moment, her absolute favourite, is Flashpoint Fire Rescue, the first game I ever reviewed. And I like that game, so I'm more than happy to play that with her, and we work together to beat that game. Forbidden Desert, again, was one that I mentioned already that she likes. Hanabi, again, I mentioned. And the other one, oh yes, Pandemic. She also quite enjoyed Pandemic as well, and that's a game that I haven't played in a group setting for quite a long time, so that was a refreshing deal. We managed to lose on easy difficulty. Yes, I never said I was any good at Pandemic, but I still enjoy it. It is a puzzle at the end of the day, not much theme, but it's still a pretty good game. So, co-ops are very good to begin with. Thirdly, I would suggest choosing games that that you can teach by doing. Now, what I mean by this is you don't want a game that relies on the other person to know all the rules before you even get started. This is why co-ops are good, because a lot of co-ops can be taught as the game is playing, but there are some conflict games that work in this regard as well. But a lot of people learn better by doing than they do by just absorbing a rulebook, and particularly non-gamers, I find, tend to learn by doing. My girlfriend is probably the biggest example of this. You know, she hates absorbing rulebooks. But she's very much an activist. She can essentially learn a game by repeating the actions, by effectively playing the game. And that's how she learns. So I recommend that you do a dummy game to begin with, where you just run through the game, teach her the rules as you play, and then once that game is done, you just refresh and start again, helping her along the way as well. But then also, you know, the second game you can play for real. And this tends to work a lot better because, you know, if you give someone a massive rule book, how do you think they're going to feel when all these rules are shoved in their face and they've never heard of this terminology before? You know, we can look at a game and go, yes, this is worker placements, yes, this is deck building, yes, this is, uh, I don't know, negotiation trading, this is cube building. But they're not going to know these terms it will be completely unfamiliar to them. So if they're reading the rule book that's got these terms, yes, you know it's simple, but it's not for them. So you've got to think from their perspective, not from yours. Two more tips I'm going to go into. Firstly, I would say keep it to one game per night. 
Now, some people love to play a variety of games, and that's fine. And if your non-gamer friend wants to play as many games as possible, then go ahead. Ideally, I suggest that you keep it to one game in the session you're doing and just play it multiple times. Firstly, they will learn that game a lot better by the repeated plays. But also, it's not overwhelming for them, because if as if it wasn't hard enough for them to learn the first game, suddenly you've just brought this new game in that they suddenly have to learn as well. Now, if you're going to play a variety, then fair enough. But I would suggest use only micro games for that. You know, games that have so few rules, it's not difficult to teach them. But in my co-op scenario with my girlfriend, first night when I was teaching games, I taught Forbidden Desert. And I stuck with Forbidden Desert and we played it three times the same night. Then another night I brought out Hanabi, another one Love Letter, you know, and you just don't overwhelm them with loads of different games. Let's face it, they've probably taken one look at your game collection and you will have just seen their jaw drop as they look at all these different games and just wonder what on earth is all of this. You know, so don't try to let them play your entire collection right off the bat. Start baby steps, start with a game that you think they're enjoying and then go from there and just repeat, repeat, repeat. Yes, you might not like to play the same game multiple times, but this is them, not you. You've got to think from their perspective, as I keep saying. And finally, this is food for thought before you even start suggesting the game. Think about what your spouse enjoys in real life. What what are the films they watch? What Well, actually, music doesn't really work. Stick to films and movies, I guess. But what are their interests? You know, it's one thing to say you know, oh, they like this, therefore they must like this game. That's not necessarily going to be the case, but it's certainly a good starting point. My girlfriend is not that big on sort of fantasy-style movies, and she absolutely hates Lord of the Rings. So naturally, I am not going to pull out the Lord of the Rings co-op game as a first starting point for playing a game with her. I'm certainly also not going to pull out a light fantasy game that involves orcs killing goblins on a regular basis because it's not what she likes. Now it turns out that what my girlfriend likes is real world scenarios, you know, real world events and things like that in games rather than it being completely made up. So that's why things like Forbidden Desert, even though it's slightly steampunkish, it's still effectively you're lost in the desert trying to get out. You know, Forbidden Desert, Hanabi, Pandemic, that's what Flashpoint, Fire Rescue, that's why they've worked. Now, I'd love to be able to teach a Robinson Crusoe, but yeah, that's going a bit above the complexity level that she'd be used to. But I reckon that if she could learn something like Robinson Crusoe, I think she would enjoy that a lot. But that's going to be a long-term build-up, and that's assuming if I ever get a chance to teach her that, because let's face it, gamers have a hard time with the rules on that. You think a non-gamer is going to find it any better? But use that as a starting point. Do they watch a lot of sci-fi movies? Then think of some sci-fi related games. Are they, is, you know, is your spouse a history teacher or likes learning about history? Then consider something that deals with like a historical event, maybe like a history based game. Uh, Seven Days of Westerplatz is a good example. It's based on a, the Polish defense in the Second World War. It's based on a real life event. It's historical. They might get into that better. I want to try this on my girlfriend and see if that works. And civilization, maybe. Perhaps they like learning, you know, are they the sort of person that likes to travel and visit places like the the Mayan ruins and, like, the Roman palaces and stuff like that? Then maybe consider a game that is based on civilization building. They might like that. So, if it's a theme that you think they will like, then they're going to get into the game more. Use that as your original food for thought before you suggest a game. You know, there are simple games in most categories of sci-fi, fantasy, real-world, historical, and that. But if you don't get the theme right to begin with, then it's likely not going to work. 
Now, you could say that some abstract games are good, but I think abstract games... I mean, I like abstract games, but I don't think they're a good starting point for teaching your non-game friend. Because if you're essentially just doing rocks on a board with some abstract games, or things that have no theme, I don't think it's going to grab them into the hobby as well as if you used a thematic game. It doesn't have to be stupidly thematic, but it has to at least have a point to it. Not just simply, this is a strategic game, is your strategy better than mine? Win, win, win. And again, I did say use co-ops ideally. Well, abstract co-ops I don't think exist. So you're going to have to deal with the fact that you're doing a conflict game that's got no theme. I don't think that's going to bring gamer, non-gamers in unless they're used to something like chess from a past life or something. So that's, that's about it. That's a few tips I've got for gaming with your non-gamer spouse. A good way to bring them into gaming, and you could apply this possibly to non-gamer relatives or friends as well. I'm just saying spouse because that's kind of how my history is built up. Teaching my girlfriend about my gaming hobby with baby steps, sticking to a theme that she likes, and not delving into areas which I know she won't like. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll mention a few other things. For example, I said that she likes real-world events type games, so obviously I'm not going to go fancy and sci-fi on a regular basis. Uh, she also likes short games, so we're talking 60 minutes or less. I mean, that's just her attention span. Please don't make her watch this episode, because I'll probably get a kick in the teeth for that. But essentially, attention span is lower, so therefore 60 minutes is about as much as you want a game to take. Forbidden Desert, great. Less than 60 minutes, easily. Hanabi, done in 20. Uh, Love Letter, done in 5. You know, stuff like that. I'm not going to bring out Power Grid for a you know first-time game when it takes several hours to play. Well, let's face it, I wouldn't take out Power Grid for any game. What am I thinking? Stupid game. Anyway, I digress. So, that's a few tips for gaming with your spouse. Hope they're useful to you. Some of them you've probably already figured out for yourself, but if not, I hope this is a good frame of reference. And if not, it's a good frame for discussion. So if you've got any tips for how to game with your non-gamer spouse or friend, then feel free to share them with me. I'd be interested to know how you got on from your history. Here we go, it's the big one. Okay, I've said that a couple of times in the past already. Oh wait, this is another big one. You happy? This is the top 10 of 2014. Yes, I know, other podcasts have managed to do these at the end of 2014 or in January. Well, they have a bigger avenue to do this with. They have more people, they have more resources. I'm just me, okay? I had to bring this out a bit later because I wanted to make certain that I had played enough games in 2014 to make a decent list. Otherwise, I'm letting you guys down by giving you a subpar list. But during December and January, I was able to get lots of plays of various games from 2014 that I couldn't do earlier, particularly with regards to Essen releases, you know, they only came out in the last couple of months, I've only got so much time to play games. But certainly I think now I've got a decent enough list for 2014, and again, the proviso is that I've not played every game from 2014, but then again, neither have you. Pretty much my answer to every top 10 list, but I'm surprised I still have to keep saying that. So, without further ado, this is my top 10 games of 2014. Number 10 takes a subject matter that I 
quite like when it comes to fantasy films and magic-related films, and that's the, the study of alchemy. And, funny enough, the game's called Alchemists. This is a deduction game where you are trying to find out what the formulas pertaining to certain ingredients are by mixing potions throughout the game and trying to deduce what elements go with what ingredients. It's a cool twist on typical deduction games, which are mostly fairly sort of real-world-like or mostly abstract. This one has a pretty good theme with it, though. Not only are you foraging for ingredients and mixing these potions, but you can mix them in different ways. You can test them on yourself, but you have to worry that if you get a negative result, you're going to have something bad happen to you. You can test them on your somewhat over-enthusiastic students, which is always a good laugh, and they request more money from you if negative effects start happening to them. And another really cool twist is that you can sell the potions to adventurers who come by who want specific positive and negative potions, and you can use this as a cool way of making money. You then publish your theories on which ingredient has what type of formula, and by the end of the game, you total up the points you've got based on whether you were right or wrong on these theories. There's a little worker placement aspect as well, which is fairly good and you know it's, I don't know I suppose it's a minor aspect of the game it's really all about the deduction but it's handled really well and the theme is quite strong. Components are really cool some are a little bit fiddly and the app works very well with it. I mean you can have multiple phones all you've got to do is type in a code it's not difficult and generally it's a cool game. It's quite heavy and a little fiddly in places, which is why it squeaks on the list at number 10. But if you've got some gamer friends that are willing to have a bit more meat to their deduction games, this is a cool bet. Alchemists. Number 9 was designed by one of the designers who's doing pretty well in recent times, Ignacy Trevizek. Trevizek? Trevor... Ignacy. Okay, I have trouble with his surname. Sorry, mate. But I think most people do. But this is a game that he brought out nearish the end of the year, and it takes... It's, it's being based on other games like 51st State that have come before, but it's a cool little card game called Imperial Settlers. Imperial Settlers lets you take control of one of four different civilizations, each with their own deck of special location cards. There is also a common location deck that everyone can pick from. And you will play this game by producing resources based on what buildings you build during the game, and you will have your unique buildings that give yourself special abilities and you can raise other players' buildings to the ground. And it's essentially building up a decent resource engine with the cards that you play and taking into account what the others do. The four civilizations have very different feels. They, the strategies can mix, but usually playing one civilization does prefer you to play in a certain way but there's four different civilizations and a lot of cards so it's going to keep you going for quite a while but it's really cool how the interaction between players works with the raise effect and i do like the resource gathering and combo building that you can do with these cards the small expansion to it makes it even better because not only does it bring in more cards but it also allows you to deck build your civilization's deck so that you can tailor it and use it against other players who have copies of imperial settlers as well this is a game that i think will get better as time goes on and that's why it's not higher up on the list but it's one that's in my collection and i quite enjoy bringing it out every now and again that's imperial settlers 
Number eight is a big hit this year by Days of Wonder, who are, let's how we say, they're transgressing from their usual shtick, which is family-friendly, nice, easy games like Ticket to Ride and Memoir 44. You know, the nice, simple games that are easy for families to pick up and play. Well, this one is going way beyond their usual shtick, and that's Five Tribes. Five Tribes is relatively simple to grasp the rules and play, and like most of their other games, it's stellar components and stellar artwork. But Five Pli- Tribes, sorry, blah, 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 blah. Five Tribes is one hell of a meat burner game. This one will have you thinking hard each turn because it takes an old Mancala concept of you have these different tiles that are different locations in the board and they all have different color meeples over them. All the color meeples have different special effects and what you will do is that you will pick up all the meeples on one tile and in sequential order depending which where you want to go and what locations you want and what meeples you want to activate you will place one meeple on the adjacent spaces as you go along and then eventually when you get to the final tile you will collect all the meeples of that last color you were about to put down. Then the meeple special effect goes off which can be anything from assassinating other meeples to collecting points to trading with merchants to uh, getting resources based on combos and my favorite the white meeples which get to summon the really cool genies that have special abilities and bonuses that give you know, that you can give to yourself. The genie artwork is so good, I hope they come up with a spin-off game just based on those. They are so gorgeous, it's unbelievable. Now, Five Tribes does have a slight AP issue, particularly with regards to the bidding aspect for turn order, but that's just credit to the fact that this game has a lot of depth to it, despite being relatively easy to pick up. It's a really cool, thinky game. I really enjoy it. I would recommend not playing this with more than three players, though, because of the AP issue, but it is a really cool game. Well done, Days of Wonder, for going outside of your comfort zone and hitting it out of the park. Five Tribes. Number seven, I suspect you were probably going to expect this to be higher up on the list. Let's face it, it's pretty high up on the list for a lot of other people. And in terms of Fantasy Flight's reputation, yeah, this is what I gave in one of the Dice Tower 2014 categories as my printing money category. This one is Star Wars Imperial Assault. It is printing money. This is Star Wars meets Descent 2.0. Press F to print money. You know that this is selling well, and it is. It's doing well. And with good regard, this is a really cool game. Descent 2.0 I already enjoyed, but it's a fantasy setting, and it's nice to see a sci-fi one, but I didn't expect them to suddenly go Star Wars. I thought they would just do a sci-fi dungeon crawl at first. But this is really cool. The miniatures are fantastic. The base game comes with an ATST Walker miniature that is just Awesome. I hate to use the word awesome, but I can't think of any other word to describe it. It's that good. And you've got the same different tile locations. You've got really cool campaign book to give you side missions and story missions. You've got a variety of characters, a variety of enemies, and the tweaks that they make to how the Overlord turn works in conjunction with yours and what resources they get to use balances the game, I think, a bit better from Descent 2.0. Now, it's not easy to play this game when you've only got two or three players as the good side, the the Rebels, because it tries to balance it out, 
And to an extent, it does. But with less players, you are going to struggle more on those missions that require you to essentially do something within a certain space of time, particularly if it involves running around the map and grabbing objectives. Four players is ideal to play this as the Rebels. Four players and an Overlord, that's what I mean. But it's just really cool. And obviously, ally packs are going to come out for this God knows how often. It comes with two in the box for Luke and Darth Vader. You're going to get Han Solo, uh, Bounty Hunters, different ATST Walkers, Rebel Troopers, Stormtroopers. You're going to get all sorts. But each one comes with not only a cool miniature, but more side missions and even skirmish missions because not only do you have the option to play this as a campaign, you can play this as a really awesome two-player skirmish mode. Just get it out. Empire versus Imperials. Go at each other. Really cool game, not as good as some others though, but I still think it's solid. Therefore, number seven, Star Wars Imperial Assault. Number six is WizKids' version of Press F to Print Money. Or at least it would have been if they hadn't cocked up their distribution issue in the first place when they first released this game. That really hurt their reputation, and I hope they've learned from it, because if they do that again... Burnt once, shame on me. You know, it's going to be that kind of scenario. And this is Marvel Dice Masters. It's such a print money category type game because, let's face it, Quarriers was a good fun game, but I didn't really get into it because it was these weird sort of, I don't know, medieval style theme enemies. It didn't really make a huge amount of sense thematically, but it was a really cool game. Then you take those mechanics, tweak them a little bit, and then put Marvel superheroes on it. Hello, money. <laughs> yes, that's what kicked this game up for me. Bringing in Marvel superheroes, all with their custom dice and the ability to basically form whatever team you fancied, whether it was to build decent combos or whether it was just thematic. This is a great, fun two-player game to play, and the collectability isn't even that bad. You're talking, what, 80p to a quid for a booster? Which I know people in the US get it cheaper, but 80p for an, or a quid for each booster is not that expensive. And to be honest, if you're just playing this casually, you could buy the starter set and one of those gravity feed boxes and you're set for a good long while. You don't have to go overboard and buy all the other versions. You could just stick with that one version you've got and that would be enough. Only the diehard collectors are going to be buying box after box trying to get the rares that they want. And to be fair, there's no power creep. The rares aren't necessarily better ability-wise than the commons and uncommons. So there's no like like Magic the Gathering issue where suddenly somebody who builds a deck out of rares is 90% of the time going to win against someone who's just got a bunch of commons running around. So I really enjoy this one. It's great for me to be able to say, right, here's Nick Fury with all these different Avenger characters going up against the opposing team. And it's just... It's really cool when you get to buy those really expensive dice. Like, I've been messing around in the game with Nick Furies and Black Widows for ages, and then suddenly I've just got enough energy to buy the Hulk. And then you get to roll the Hulk dice with his massive power stats and go Hulk smash, you know, and just get into it. Really enjoy this two-player game. The distribution did hurt it, and it would be nice if they packaged it a bit better, because it's a bit annoying having to pretty much iron your cards every time you get a booster. But really enjoyable game. Marvel Dice Masters. Number five is probably going to shock a few people because I tend to prefer games with like really good theme. And this one has a bit of a theme, but you could also say it's fairly abstracted. And there's a big mixed opinion with this game. Some really like it. 
Others hate it mainly because the box cover gave them the impression it was going to be an Amerifrash beat-em-up game, and instead they got a cube bag-building Euro game with lots of different mechanics and various ways to play. This is Hyperborea. Hyperborea was a big surprise for me because I knew ahead of time that it was a Euro game, so I didn't run into it thinking, ooh, Ameritrash and... Sorry, Ameritrash. Let's get it right. I didn't go into it thinking that. I knew it was going to be a Euro game, but I wanted to know if the mechanics was good. And I'm pleased to say they are. I really enjoyed this game, and I was shocked to find that even with five players, we were able to get the game done in a decent amount of time. Yes, you might have some AP, but if you think about it, you only draw so many cubes out of the bag before you start your turn. So, you've only got so many actions to have to think about. You know, there's no good thinking that I want to do all this attacking when I don't have the cubes that let me do it. You, if you get into that habit of just thinking your turn out before it gets to yours, the turns actually play out quite quick. But enough of that, like, debating that potential flaw. The game itself is actually really good fun. Its Euro mechanics are pretty sound, it involves you to think, your choices have meaning, and there's lots of different ways to play this game, particularly with the technologies that you buy. Do you want to go for all gold? Do you want to go for all text? Do you want to go for a full-out combat? Do you want a turtle? Do you want to spread out all over the board? Do you want to uh, constrict to like just a couple of tiles and build up and build up? Do you want to trade? It's really cool. It's got a lot of flexibility. Really cool components. I mean, after all, I believe Asmodee printed this out, so what do you expect? It's going to be decent quality. And it was a big surprise for me. And I'm not putting it on the list just because it was a surprise. I really do enjoy this game. It's staying in the collection, and I've enjoyed every game I've played of it. And I still have yet to test out every single colour in it. But I've had several games, and it's going well. So, number five, Hyperborea. Check it out, even if you're just a little bit sceptical about it. I recommend you just give it a try and see what you think. Number four. Now, to tell a tale, there was a game called Agricola. I played it, expecting to really like it. It was probably one of the first heavy Euro games I played, but I liked the idea of farming. I liked the idea of collecting resources and then using those resources to build cool stuff. It's a type of genre that I really like. And Agricola was a great game. I didn't like the fact that you had to basically have a balanced farm of everything and there was a bit of, uh, it was a bit harsh, it punished you a lot for not having certain things. So that was a little bit of an off-put. Then came Caverna. Caverna sorted out the flaws I had and became a, an excellent group farming game. Now we have the third one in this series, which I would like to call Uri Rosenberg's Greatest Hits, and that is Fields of Arl, or Arla. Not entirely certain how you're supposed to pronounce it, but that's essentially Fields of Arl, I'm going to call it. This is a two-player only game. I mean, yes, you can play it solo, and I must admit, it's very fun to play it solo, because it is effectively multiplayer solitaire at the best of times. But this is a very detailed version of what Agricola, Glass Road, and Caverna essentially bring to the table. Yes, you are farming, but that's only a small part of it, and you don't even have to do the farming bit. You can do the animals as before, but then you've also got vehicles that trade goods with other villages. You've got these tools, like spades and axes and all that, that you can improve to make the actions you do better. You've got resources like uh, wood and clay that you can upgrade into timber and brick. You've got buildings that you can build. 
Honestly, there is so much going on in this game, it is unbelievable. There is a lot of content in that box for 55 plus pounds in the UK. This is not a cheap game, I warn you, but there's a lot in that box and it is very entertaining. I really like the plethora of paths to victory that you get with this. It's a great solo game, and even in two-player there is a worker placement aspect because you're placing your workers out and obviously if an opponent takes the space that you want, which happens more often than you might think, then it's going to force you to change the strategy. Games are pretty close, even if you go for completely different strategies, so it's very well balanced. And if you like Uri Rosenberg's style of games, this is going to be a surefire hit with you. Now again, it's expensive, and it only goes up to two players. But to be honest, if, I f if this went above two players, I think it would just get ridiculous time-wise. But I think that if you if you have like a, a gaming spouse that is a proper gamer and you want a Euro game that the two of you can play, that's really good on the resource management thing, you can't really go wrong with this. I think this is a really cool Euro game. Has some limitations for, again, the fact that it's only two players and it's quite expensive and it's not the most complex thing to learn, but there's a fair few rules you need to get into your head and it can feel overwhelming at first. But I'm really liking this so far. Fields of Arl. Number three, and finally we have a game that takes the alien license and puts it to good use. Well done, Upper Deck. This is Legendary Encounters Alien. I already own Marvel Legendary and Legendary Villains, so I was pretty pumped to see that an alien version was coming out with different ways of how to play the game. Now, if I was to compare the two, I actually think this is better than Marvel Legendary because I think the gameplay mechanics are better in this game, and I like the fact that you can have advanced rules that allow you to play as the alien when you die, and also for people to be on the side of the corporation, so effectively you have a traitor in your midst. Now granted, that makes the game exceedingly hard to win, and the game's not exactly a pushover at the best of times, but that's a credit to the game. It's challenging. All the alien films that you've ever seen, people do not just win easily. They don't just gun down a million aliens and then suddenly it's like, oh, well, that was no big deal. Nah, even the Marines got themselves whipped by the aliens in the second film. So it's good that this game forces you to think and work as a team. And I must admit, you can work as a team better in here than you can in Marvel Legendary because certain cards allow you to use cards on other players' turns to help them. And that's a really cool concept. But I love the fact that you don't know what cards are coming your way from the alien deck to begin with. I like the fact that you have scenarios based on the movies. So if you want to play the aliens film where you're setting up sentry guns and fighting the queen, then you can do that. And that's really cool. But you can tweak them to your heart's content. And this is a fairly easy one to expand. I'm sure they probably will at some point. Yes, they're going to bring out Predator, but I wouldn't be surprised if aliens got an expansion at some point. And the facehuggers still scare me to death. I really hate facehuggers. Facehuggers in every single computer game, film, or board game even, of aliens freak me out. I don't like spiders, and facehuggers is basically a giant camel spider that infects you with eggs and screeches. Ugh, really hate them. The amount of heart attacks I have suffered playing games like Alien Isolation or the Alien vs. Predator games where a facehugger just comes out of the screen and appears in front of your face and you die. Ugh, hate them. And yes, you can get facehuggered in this game. I have had a couple of games where I have been facehugged and then had a chestburster burst out of me right before I was going to complete an objective. Curse you facehuggers. But love the game. Brilliant. 
Number 3, Legendary Encounters Alien. Number 2 is a game that I was only able to get played recently, but it's had a lot of plays since then, and I was so glad to get it. It ran out of stock pretty much what instantly when it came into the UK, and I've had to wait a long time to get it back, but I'm so glad I waited for this. I saw the Dice Tower play it live in a 24-hour marathon and on one of their evenings, and I knew that this was a game I was going to like. Sheriff of Nottingham, out of the Dice Tower Essentials line. Now yes, I'm associated with the Dice Tower as a contributor, but that is not my reason for liking this game. This game is just a barrel of laughs. You have a sheriff who you are trying to get your goods past, like kind of like border control in a sense, so that you can take your goods to the market and sell them off. You are trying to effectively get the most money by the end of the game, and you can do that by selling legal goods, but you can also try and sneak contraband through, which is worth more, but also illegal. The great thing with this game, though, is that you have these little pouches that you put your cards in in secret, and you hand them to the sheriff, look him in the eye, and claim what it is you're selling, and you lie to him. You lie directly to his face, or you can tell the truth and just hope that he thinks you're lying, because if he then chooses to open your pouch and you weren't lying, he's got to pay you money as an inconvenience. But if you are lying, your goods get confiscated and you've got to pay penalties. But this is just such a cool negotiation game, bluffing game, where the lying is just so much fun because you are just egging players on to like, oh, I'm going to look in this bag. I think I need a buck from you. Come on. You know, what are you going to do? Is um, Five bucks if you won't look at my bag. Six bucks if you look at his. You know, it's, it's, you get such good debates between all the players. And people just get into this theme and hammer up to the next degree. The amount of different roleplay perspectives I've seen of the sheriff has been insane and it's just so much fun particularly when you get those guys that are just really good at making up characters and doing impressions on the spot it's just so much fun almost my best game of the year one game just pips it for being quicker and simpler that you know just as fun but this almost made the top spot but fantastic game can't wait to get it to the table again love it the bits sheriff of Nottingham And finally, my number one. What made the number one spot for 2014? Well, this one was a no-brainer. This was the first game I put down on this list. Even though Sheriff of Nottingham was a close second, I knew this was going to be number one. It was not difficult. This game can be played in less than five minutes. It is easy to teach. It requires an app to play, but the app is essentially an essential companion which works beautifully as narrated by Eric Summerer. The game is a party game, it is a barrel of laughs, and it takes everything that was great about the original game, removes all the flaws that the original game had, and then condenses it down into a quick, laugh-filled party game, which is just the definition of fun. One Night Ultimate Werewolf. This game I love. It is bluffing and negotiation to a T, where everybody has a special role that the character does, and just like normal werewolf, you're trying to you've got villagers versus werewolves and you know the villagers need to kill a werewolf and the werewolves need to survive by bluffing and deception except in the original werewolf if one person went out they were gone and eliminated and they'd have to wait ages for the game to finish and most of the characters in the previous type werewolf didn't have much in the way of roles this one though every character can have a really cool role and with the daybreak expansion it's got even better with some really interesting roles in there too 
but this one is just so simple to play and so much fun. You can teach this game in two minutes. The nighttime phase will take probably another two minutes. The daytime phase can take whatever you like, but typically I keep it at four or five minutes, and then you might spend all of that time that you've just spent teaching and playing the game just debating over what just happened in the game and laughing to your heart's content over. It goes down so well in different groups. I've never had a game of this full flat, even when it's felt a little one-sided towards the villagers or the werewolves based on what roles were picked or what players you were with, etc. It's just... Oh, it is the definition of fun. I cannot wait to get this to the table every time I bring it to a night because it's a small box and all I need is a smartphone or an iPad with decent volume for a pub, I must admit, to play it out. But if you've got one of those little mini Bluetooth speakers, fantastic, you're on the way. Cheap, fun, amazing, love it a bit. Easily my number one of 2014. <laughs> there you have it, my top 10 of 2014. Yes, it's come later than everyone else, but like I said, this is my solo project. It's not easy for me to get these out super quick. Hopefully, though, normal service will resume from now because I've had a lot to do during February and I expect 90% of that to be resolved before March starts. So hopefully future podcasts and obviously the reviews I'm doing will come out more regularly and we'll get back to some, you know, good old gaming. That's what I'm hoping. But 2014 for me was a reasonable year. There was a lot of occasions where the hype didn't measure up to the actual game, but it was a pretty solid year, I have to admit. At first I thought, it's a bit not great, you know, not fantastic. But as I played more games during December and January, suddenly, you know, a lot of these games started speaking out and suddenly, ooh, 2014 actually wasn't that bad. I don't think it was the best year ever. I think that 2012 was a particularly good year for a lot of games, but, you know, there were some good games from earlier years. But 2014 was a fairly good year. It was fairly solid. Will 2015 measure up to it? I don't know. From what I'm seeing on the future games list, I'm not convinced it will measure up to 2014, but I reckon it will make a pretty good stab at it. Let's face it, we've already got off to a pretty good start with XCOM. My review for that will be coming out very soon. But for now, that's it for me at The Broken Meeple. Take care, enjoy playing games, and I can't wait to speak to you again soon. Enjoy the rest of the winter. To find out more about board games and The Broken Meeple in general, you can visit one of the three main avenues we have online. First up, there is the blog itself on www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. You can also find The Broken Meeple on Facebook. Please come and like the page and share your thoughts with me. And on Twitter, you can find me at The Broken Meeple. 